Take your Bible and open to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 13. We'll pick it up in verse 8 and just read through verse 10. Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 8. It says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Tonight we're returning here to this uh, 13th chapter of the book of Romans. We've been away from it uh, for a while. I've taken you on a I told you when we began, it wouldn't just be a rabbit trail. It would be kind of out through the woods and the forest and the muds and all that kind of stuff. So we've been on this, this discourse for a while um, off of this text. Uh, we were looking at issues uh, of uh, taxes and then tithing and then free will giving. And, and we saw that that's what uh, Christians do. They give um, because Christians are always motivated by grace. Last week we were in Second Corinthians chapter 8. And we saw that Paul used the Macedonian believers as the New Testament example for what free will, free will giving uh, looks like. Uh, the Macedonians were extremely poor themselves, but they were moved by the compassion and the love of Christ for them in their own lives. And they wanted to share what little they had with the believers in Jerusalem that were struggling financially. Grace had so affected the Macedonians' hearts that they, in their actions, or the grace had so affected their hearts that their actions and their desires changed. Uh, they were completely sold out to the person of Christ. And they valued him above everything else. And so they were overwhelmed in their lives by God's kindness in their lives uh, because they'd been forgiven uh, of their sin. Uh, and again, God providing them the greatest treasure that they uh, treasured above all else, uh, that being everlasting fellowship with God the Father through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the depth of their affliction and poverty, in spite of their circumstances, the Macedonians wanted to be a part of that great privilege of helping those in the body of Christ, again, those believers in Jerusalem that were struggling. Uh, they wanted to give back to the Lord's people. They wanted to be a part of the Lord's work uh, because they had such a love for Christ. And again, because they had a love for Christ, they had a love for the, the people of God. Uh, their brothers and sisters, again, whom they had never met uh, there in Jerusalem. They just wanted to be a part of carrying them and relieving their suffering. And in that study, I, I said that giving, our giving is always a great barometer of where our hearts are and where we are spiritually, how we view our money, uh, our possessions. Uh, again, a Christian, he's like his Savior. Uh, therefore, he has a heart motivated uh, with a desire to glorify God in everything that he does. And, and uh, materialism, on the other hand, manifests itself in, in materialistic attitudes. Godliness manifests itself in godlike attitudes of sacrificial giving to meet the needs of others. And that's what the Macedonians were like. They were just like their Savior. They just wanted to give, uh, just like he had given to them. And we saw in the New Testament there really is no mark of percentage uh, that we give. Again, giving is always an attitude of the heart. Uh, giving, again, is really an, an act of worship. Uh, we've been bought with a price by the precious blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we're not our own. We belong to Him, and everything we own belongs to Him. Uh, everything we have, even our money, has been given to us by Him. Uh, therefore, we should make it available back to Him however He desires to use it. So again, when it comes to giving, God's not interested in percentage. He's not interested in amount. He's really interested in the heart. 
Has the heart been affected? Has the heart been changed by God's grace in a person's life? That's the issue. And and, and again, the issue of the heart really is the theme tonight that we look at uh, that is going to really lies behind what we're going to look at here in these verses in uh, Romans chapter 13 as we return to the text. I told you that several times that the uh, that Paul has laid out the gospel principles and the problems, if you will, with the gospel in the first 11 chapters. And then you come to chapter 12, that's the big therefore. Here, here's the beginning of the implications of, uh, of the gospel. And that theme, I, I think, runs all the way to the remainder of the book. 11 chapters on doctrine, 11 chapters of the imperatives or, or the indicatives, and, and, and then the imperatives. This is what God has done through Christ. Therefore, as a result, this is our response to it. And, and if you wanted to look or just listen, you can, but chapter 12, verse 1, uh, uh, based on God's mercy in, in our life, uh, Paul says, <clears throat> chapter 12, verse 1, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. So because of God's mercy... To us in Christ, as Christians, we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to live our lives in this manner, a manner that's consumed with pleasing God, a a life that's consumed with pleasing Christ, again, yielding our lives back to him in total as living sacrifices, a a life that is not conformed to this world, but a a life that has a mind that's continually renewed by the word of God. Therefore, if we went on in that chapter, chapter 12, therefore, we would say that renewed mind, that mind that has been affected by the mercies of God, is, is a person, results in a person who's humble. A, a person who's humble, a person who seeks to use the gifts that God has given to them for the benefits and the encouragement of the building up of the body of Christ. Whether it be teaching or exhorting or giving or showing mercy or leading, whatever gift God has given to us, we use that not for ourselves, but we use it back into the body of Christ because of the mercies of God in our life. He goes on and he says, look, we're to love and we're to love without hypocrisy. We're to abhor what is evil. We're to cling to what is good. We're to be devoted to each other in brotherly love. We're to give preference to one another. We're to diligently serve each other. We're to rejoice in hope and persevere in times of tribulations. We're to be devoted to prayer. We're to contribute to the needs of saints. We're to practice uh, 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 hospitality. Again, all because of God's mercies to us in Christ. We're to bless those who persecute us. We're to rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. I mean, it just goes on and on. Because of God's interaction in our life, because of God's mercy in our life, things have changed. And every relationship relationship that we have with others has changed because of God's kindness in our own life. Our relationship with believers, our relationship with unbelievers... It has been affected positively, or at least it should be, if we're walking in obedience to God and his word. He goes on and says, look, we're not to be wise in our own estimation. We're not to repay evil for evil. We're to do what is right in the sight of all men. Paul says if it's possible with us, as far as it be with us, we're to be at peace with all men. We're not to take our own revenge. We're to leave room for the wrath of God. If our enemy is hungry, we're to feed him. If he's thirsty, we're to, we're to give him a drink. We're not to be overcome by evil, but we're to be overcome evil with good. Because of God, because of what God has done for us in Christ, and again, uh, that that changes everything. By the mercies of God, that changes everything. Every relationship we have 
from Christ forward is different because of Christ. Even relationships we have with governing authorities, and that's the top of chapter 13, the first seven verses. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed it will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God for you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For uh, For because of this you pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing, rendered all that is due them, tax to whom taxes uh, do, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Again, because of Christ in our life, everything's different. Everything has changed. All our interaction with people around us, our relationship with others, uh, our relationship with each other in the body of Christ, our relationship with those outside the body of Christ, e- even worldly authorities, that is all different because of Christ. And so what Paul's going to do here in verse 8 and following is going to return our mind right back to this very truth. Because we've been changed by Christ, because Christ has interacted in our life, therefore we have certain duties, we have certain responsibilities to others that have to be carried out, that must be carried out. But we're not just to be hearers of the Word of God, but we're also to be what? Doers of the Word, right? Christ in us, Christ in us has completely changed us. Christ has changed us for eternity, therefore he is changing us in time. And that change looks like something. So Paul's going to show us what it looks like here in verse 8. He says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Now, why does he say that here, and then what does that mean? Why does he say it, and what does it mean? Now, you come here, a lot of commentators come to verse 8 and says, Owe nothing to anyone. A lot of them start into these uh, discourses about financial issues, debt, and how to get rid of it. America, the debtor nation, a debtor nation, climbing out of the debt pit. I mean, those are the kind of titles you often hear or read coming out of this verse. Maybe it's in part due to what the NIV and the rendering of the NIV says, let no debt remain uh, outstanding. So some guys, again, go into great discourses and say what, what this verse teaches us is that we're never to be borrowing money. We're never to take a loan. Therefore, you should never buy anything on credit. Uh, including some would say you should never even have a mortgage on, on, on your house. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but that's not what this verse is teaching. That's not what it means when he says, let no debt remain outstanding or owe nothing to anyone. Uh, may, maybe some think it is because of the part that he's just talked about, uh, taxes and custom and all, all that kind of things. But that's not what he's talking about. If Paul is all of a sudden doing a, uh, what is it, a Dave Ramsey financial... <laughs> seminar at the moment. There's a problem here, right? Because this is not what this verse is teaching about. It's a tremendously difficult um, transition if that's what he's all of a sudden gone to, but it really contradicts some of the things that the Bible already teaches on the issue of of borrowing and lending, and we're not going to go into that. We're not going to run another rabbit trail at the moment onto that issue. 
about borrowing and lending. But just in general, in that category, neither the Old Testament or in the New Testament, is there any kind of categorical command against borrowing or against lending? There are certain requirements for lending in the Mosaic Law, such as not charging exorbitant interest and certainly not charging interest to a fellow countryman who is poor. But again, there's nothing in the New Testament or the Old Testament that strictly forbids lending and borrowing. So that's not the issue here. When Paul says, let no debt remain outstanding or owe nothing to anyone, while it's true we should be careful uh, about uh, borrowing and lending and all that kind of stuff, whatever you borrow, money, books, uh, uh, whatever, uh, and, and you borrow something, you should give it back or pay it back as soon as you can. Again, that's not the issue here. So what is the issue? Well, it's interesting. If you look back up to verse 7, that helps us with the context. He says in verse 7, Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Uh, the NIV says, Give everyone what you owe them, or pay all what is owed them in the ESV. Now, depending on your translation, you're either going to have the word due, D-U-E, uh, render all that is due them, or the word owe, O-W-E, I pay what is owed them. And then in verse 8, it says, owe nothing to anyone, or in the NIV, again, let no debt remain outstanding. So you have two words, due, D-U-E, and owe, O-W-E. And in the Greek, it's really the same word. It's off elo. And it just, it's, in verse 8, it's used as a noun, in verse uh, uh, 8, it's used as a verb. So it's essentially the same word. So what Paul is saying, in essence, is this. In light of everything that I've been teaching you, all the things I've been talking about, uh, whatever is owed to someone else, whatever is due them, uh, again, just let them have it. Render to all that is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And again, in that particular category, he's speaking in regard to authority. And, and again, this whole attitude, like just for example, honor to whom honor is due, fear, respect to whom fear is owed, respect to whom respect is owed. Uh, and again, we don't see that in our culture when it comes to authority. I mean, I mean, I mean that, that's gone. Uh, speaking evil of authorities over us is a pretty commonplace. In fact, a lot of people have podcasts and radio programs and make a lot of money doing that, right? But for the Christian, that really shouldn't be our attitude about authority. So, so being dis, acting in dishonor or, or reverent towards those who are in, in authority over us really should have no part of the Christian's life. Now, again, he goes on in verse 8 and says, owe nothing to anyone. So, again, basically saying, look, dis, discharge your obligation to every person. And, and then again, he adds this. Uh, uh, he says, w- which gives us the issue. Owe nothing to anyone, here it is, except to what? Love one another. So again, Paul's not talking about money. He's talking about love. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the command of Christ to love. That's what the Christian does, loves. That love really should rule supreme in the believer's heart. Love really should be the issue that legislates all of our interaction in life. How we love and, and love makes the conscience more more tender than law could ever. It's the issue of love. Now, obviously, we understand the greatest display of love in the history of mankind took place on a, a hill outside of Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago in a place called Golgotha. And that's when the Son of God who came into this world, that's when the Son of God who was sent into this world, that's when the Son of God who came into this world came and sent, was sent and motivated by love. The love of the Father, the love of the Son. And he came into the world to, to bear the weight of eternal judgment against us at the cross because of our sin. 
And God displayed his love in brightest colors, as it were, in the most clearest view, the finest example, when he sacrificed his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every other display of, uh, of love pales in comparison. This is the standard. As Christians, we're followers of Christ. As Christians, we look at Christ. We look to Christ. So what does it look like in a life of somebody who's been affected by the mercies of God in their own life? What does that look like? What does, what is it, what does it look like to, to have a godly love or, or righteous love? When he says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Now, just as, as kind of a side note here, this concept of love is not something new that, that Paul's all of a sudden putting in here in chapter, uh, chapter uh, 13. Paul, Paul's been building, if you think about the book of Romans, he's been building on the concept of love for quite some time now. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God, God demonstrates his own love towards us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I mentioned it this morning out of Romans 8.35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril of sword? Verse 37, all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, again, back in Romans 12, verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy, bore what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. So again here, uh, verse 8, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, and he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Now again, the NIV says like this, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. I, I like that phraseology because that's really accurate. Except the continuing debt. Oh, no debt, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. So what, is, what Paul is saying is, look, as a believer in Christ, somebody who's been uh, affected by the, the mercies of God, we have a constant perpetual obligation, a constant perpetual debt that we must not allow to remain un paid or outstanding. Rather, we have to fulfill it, okay? It's a debt that you can never pay in full, but you have to fulfill it. So what does that mean you're going to have to do? You're going to have to be what? Constantly paying it, just like you are on your credit card, right? Well, I guess that didn't work, huh? (laughs) That's what he's calling us to do. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continued debt to love one another. That's what, that's what is owed. That's what we owe to other people because of God's mercy in our own life. In view of God's mercy to us in Christ, all believers have a constant obligation, a debt to love one another. And again, we can never pay that debt off in full. O- Origen, one of the early uh, church fathers, said it like this, the debt of love remains with us permanently and never leaves us. This is a debt which we pay every day and forever always, right? We, we just pay it forever. We just keep paying back. As long as we take breath in this world, we just, we're, we're called to pay off the debt of loving one another because of the mercies of God and Christ in our own life. Oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another. Now that phrase to one another first applies to believers, all believers, fellow believers. And, and again, we're, we're talking about how Christ's love has changed us, how Christ's interaction has affected us, how Christ's love for us has changed us and all of our relationships 
with everyone, and, and again, everyone we come in contact with. So again, first, this love one another applies to those in the church, to all believers. Christ himself said in John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment, I give you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. John 15, 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. Verse 17 of John 15, this is the command that I have for you, that you love one another. Uh, John, in his first letter, 1 John 3.23 says, This is the commandment that we believe in the name of, the, the, of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. Uh, 1 John 4.7, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God for God is love. For, for the believers in Colossae, <clears throat> Paul said this, Colossians 3. As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, <coughs> excuse me, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you, and beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. In the book of Hebrews, the writer there says, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Peter, 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sin, right? So we are called to love. We have a debt to love one another in the body of Christ. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. So that's a debt we're called to pay we're always to love each other. We're always to love other believers in the body of Christ each and every day and forever is that kind of the, is the, is the, uh, the idea. But that phrase also, love one another, extends to those unbelievers around us, all unbelievers. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, you've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy. And pray for those who persecute you, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's not just about loving the people we like, it's about loving those around us, the unbeliever. Those who, again, who we would consider, or they consider us their enemies. Again, Romans chapter 12, verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. Verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. So in doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Again, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another because of God's mercy to you in Christ. Again, we're, we're to love one another. We're, we're to love believer and unbeliever so that we can demonstrate that we're actually different. They were actually indwelt by the person of God, the person of Christ. We're actually his followers because the world doesn't love that way. Christ alone loved that way when he came into this earth, right? He, 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 and we're part of him. So a godly, righteous love is much more than words. It's just much more than uh, emotional sentimentality, uh, sentimentalism. Uh, and again, we talked about that. Godly love, godly, righteous love is more than just at words, it's actions. Uh, again, in, in the Macedonian believers, they love the believers they'd never met, right? Gentiles loving these Gentile, these Jewish believers back in Jerusalem, they, they never met. And they wanted to demonstrate that. They didn't want to just say, you know what, we love you, go in peace. So no, we're going to sacrifice for them. Paul says to the Galatians in Galatians 6.10, So while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are the household of faith. 
while we have opportunity. We're to do good to everyone. So what is doing good? Well, I don't know, it could be a variety of different things. Doing good to somebody could mean to, to, that you are ministering to their physical needs, their financial, financial needs. Uh, doing good may be praying for others. Uh, doing, doing good may be extending grace and forgiveness uh, to someone who has offended us. Well, while you have opportunity, let us do good to all men. It's interesting to me that sometimes... It seems from my perspective anyway, Christians have the hardest time with that one, to grant forgiveness to someone who has offended them when we've been granted forgiveness by, by somebody that one we've offended the greatest is God in Christ. Why, why do we struggle with granting forgiveness to somebody when God has forgiven us so richly? And Christ asked us in question, Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. If you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, your Father will not forgive your transgression. It's a pretty plain text. It says what it says. It means exactly what it says. Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. Here's the example. Just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers what? A multitude of sins. It's kind of hard to have tension and discord in your home between a husband and wife if all you're doing is extending grace and mercy to each other. If you're choosing not to remember someone's sin against you, if you're, if you're uh, being fervent in your love for one another, if you're being kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you, it's kind of hard to have discord. And when I come upon people who have discord in their, their families, I ask myself, and then I ask them, it's, why in the world would you want to do that? Why would you want to live that way? When you can live in peace, if you're a member of the body of Christ, if you're indwelt by the Prince of Peace, if the, if the, the command is, is forgive, then why not just forgive? Well, you don't, I, don't, I know I don't understand. But why would you live in Crazyville? Why would you live in discord? You know, the entire world is against us. Have you noticed that? The one place that you want peace in your life is at your home. Right? You want peace in your home. And you can have that. It goes for the husband and for the wife. If we just apply the principles and are obedient to the commands of the Scripture, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So, so a godly love that Paul is commanding us to is a forgiving love. It's a forgiving love. A godly love that Paul is calling us to is a giving love. And, and this kind of love that Paul is calling us to, this godly love is a sacrificial love. John fifteen twelve, this is my commandment that you love one another. And here's the standard, just as I have loved you, says the Lord Jesus Christ. And greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. You know, if we call ourselves Christians, it looks like something. If we call ourselves followers of Christ, <clears throat> we should get in line and live our lives accordingly to how he has lived and interacted with us. So again, as Christians, those who have been received the, have received the mercies of, of God and the grace of God in our life, we are to be imitators of Him. Imitators of our Lord, imitators of our Savior. Uh, Ephesians 5.1, Therefore, as imitators of God, as beloved children, walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us as an offering, a sacrifice to God, as a fragrant aroma. 1 John 3.16, We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We know this, we know love by this, and he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for my 
wife or my husband or spouses, right? I mean, is that an application of that uh, statement of truth? I think so. You want peace? You should have peace. You can have peace in Christ if you're obedient. And again, we understand the greatest command or the greatest demonstration of love of all time obviously was Christ. Again, on that hill in Golgotha, his substitutionary death upon the cross, his resurrection from the dead, <clears throat> offered up because of our transgression and raised because of our justification. Therefore, we have new standing before God because of the mercies of God. And again, the greatest demonstration of doing good on our part to somebody else that we come in contact with might be to let them know exactly what the Savior has done for them. It may be indeed the greatest opportunity we have or the greatest demonstration uh, of doing good for others uh, around us may be to share the hope we have in the gospel of, of God's kindness through Christ. Romans 10 verse 11, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Acts 4.12, there's salvation in no one else, <clears throat> for there's no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. We need to tell people that truth. It's the command of the Scripture. That's how we do them good. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, I'm under obligation. Now, if you have the King James or the New King James, and when it says I'm under obligation, it says I'm a debtor. D-E-B-T-E-O-R, D-E-B-T-O-R, a debtor both to the Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, <clears throat> for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. The same word that he used in Romans 13.8 to owe is the same word here for debtor. Paul said, look, I'm a debtor. I'm a debtor to grace. I owe. I owe God because of his kindness to me. I'm a debtor to grace to preach the gospel to those around me to everyone, to declare the gospel of grace, God's kindness through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, because it's God's power unto salvation. The gospel has transformed and changed me, right? Obviously, the gospel transformed and changed the apostle Paul. And now he's a debtor to grace, and that debt makes him responsible to make salvation known to others. Not just so that men could be saved, which is great, but really so God can be what? Worshipped. Because God is the object in the realm of salvation, not men. Men are the recipients of God's mercy. God is the object that deserves our worship and praise because he's the one that's made salvation possible by offering his son. I owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. So Paul says, look, as the recipients of God's mercy, we have a great, a great debt to pay and pay it always. Always love. Always loving our fellow man. And again, the greatest demonstration of godly love on our behalf may just be to take the time to share the gospel with those around us so that they might also hear of the mercies of God, that they might also partake of the mercies of God in their own life by repentance and faith in the Savior. I owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. And then he goes on and says, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. It's a very dynamic statement, a very important statement. But what does it mean? He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Now, some people believe that the law, and love, and law are incompatible. But law and love are, are that love and law are antithetical. But but they're not. So Paul's going to show us. He's going to show us how. He's going to show us the relationship here. He's going to go from the debt of love, beginning in verse eight, to what some have called the discharge of love in verse nine. So Paul says again, says this: Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. 
And that's why he goes on in verse 9 and says this. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Now, again, he's saying love looks like something. Love's practical. It's tangible. And, And again, love fulfills the law. There's a relationship between the law and love. Now, in our minds, we tend to put them as opposites. Therefore, we tend to not like the things that come under law, and and we tend to, in our minds, contrast that with love. But I don't think that's correct biblically. The contrast of law is really lawlessness. That's the opposite. The truth is that law and love go together. And again, a lot of people don't see that, but I think that's biblically true. So after declaring that law fulfills, uh, love fulfills the law, he's going to illustrate it. He's going to show you. And he's going to do that by quoting five Old Testament laws. The first four come from the, first, from the uh, Ten Commandments. And they're not in the exact order, but they come out of Exodus chapter 20. And then the fifth one is found in Leviticus chapter 19. So put a mark there in your Bible because we'll come back, but turn over to or turn back to <coughs> Leviticus uh, chapter 20. And in Exodus chapter 20 are the Ten Commandments. And the first four commandments deal with uh, a man's relationship with God. And the last of the six deal with our relationship with other men. And what Paul's going to do is he's going to pick out four of the six, the last six. He's going to pick out commandment six or commandment seven, six, eight, and then ten. It just a sampling is really what he's doing out, out of the second half of the Ten Commandments. And he says, these and the rest uh, sum up or summed up in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the key to obeying the entire law is love. Law does, love doesn't replace the law, but love makes obedience possible. So again, Exodus chapter 20, we're not going to be here very long, just kind of a quick look here. <clears throat> Verse 1. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Here's the first of the Ten Commandments, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, it's love that fulfills that command. How does that? Well, because love is loyal. Love is loyal. Love is true to its object. Love is not fickle. Love is single-minded. You don't have to tell a man to be faithful to his wife if he loves his wife. You don't have to tell a Christian to have no other gods than the true God if he loves the true God. Love fulfills this commandment. Now, however, if a man doesn't love God, then it's going to be difficult for him not to have other gods, right? If he has no true love for the true God, he'll create all kinds of false gods to satisfy, to satisfy himself. But love is loyal. And, and if you have a loyal love to the true and the living God, you won't desire other false gods. Again, if you love the true God, you won't be tempted to bow to the gods of this world like the pressures of success and prestige and and power, uh, the pressures of the day. If you love the true God preeminently with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. If you love God with your all, then you won't have to worry about loving anything or anyone else more or other than him. The second commandment, verse 4. 
You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven uh, above or on earth beneath or under the water uh, uh, of the earth. That you, you shall not wor- worship them or serve them. For I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity on the fathers uh, of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation for those who hate me, showing loving kindness to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Again, because love is loyal, it's not fickle. It's true object. Uh, it's true the object of that one loves, right? And so if you love God, you're not going to make yourself an idol out of anything else except him. You just want to worship him. You want to love him supremely. If you love God supremely, you're not going to make idols. You don't have to worry about going out into the out into the wood shop and taking a piece of firewood and cutting it up into some kind of icon and sitting it on the mantle and saying, there's my God, I'm going to bow down and worship to it. Or if you love God supremely, you won't be putting some person or something uh, above God and in, in, in essence making that an idol in your life, whatever that might be. Your love for God is supreme. So if God, your love for God is supreme, you won't be an idolater. The third commandment, verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. If you love the Lord God preeminently, you'd never do that. If you love the Lord God preeminently, you'd never want to dishonor his name, either by word or, or by deed, because you love him. If you love God preeminently, you'd never want to drag his name down. You'd never want to be a reproach upon him. You never want to treat the, the name of the Lord with irreverence because, again, you love him and you think about what that looks like in, in your life. Now you go verses 8 to <clears throat> 10, a little bit there in 11, really gives the fourth commandment, which is about keeping the Sabbath day. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your sons or your daughter, you or male or female servants or cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. If you love God, you're going to set him apart and make sure that he is an object of your worship. You're going to set him apart and make sure he's an object of your worship. And you're going to appoint yourself unto holiness because he's holy. And you love him who is holy. And you don't want to defile yourself or, or again bring reproach upon his name. Now I think it's pretty easy to understand that in the first four commandments there. Again, it tells us how to love. How love fulfills the law, right? If you're going to be loyal to God, be faithful to God, reverent to God, holy to God, it's because you, you have a love for him. And that's exactly what Jesus says in the New Testament. Matthew 22, verse 36. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? He said, you shall what? Love the Lord your God again with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind. That's the greatest and foremost commandment, right? So nothing has changed. That's what it means to love God. The first four commandments. Now the second table of the law, <coughs> excuse me if you will, the second uh, six uh, relate to our relationship with others, our relationship with people. And again, they're all based on love. They're all, uh, uh, all based on the issue of love. The fifth commandment, verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord God gives you. I mean, we're to love our parents. My goodness, they gave us life. They provided for us. We're to love them. We're, we're to love them. And love begins in the home. Why is there so much lovelessness in this culture? Because there's lovelessness in the home. Sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Why is that? Because love is protective. 
Love doesn't seek to kill. Love seeks to, <clears throat> to save and to build up. The seventh commandment, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Love doesn't defile someone. The eighth commandment, verse 16, you shall not steal. Love doesn't steal because love wants you to have what belongs to you. Love wants you to own your own possessions. The ninth commandment, 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor because that love doesn't tell lies against people. Love doesn't seek to tear down or to destroy. Again, love builds up. The 10th commandment, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house or you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Love would say, look, I'm happy with what you have and I'm happy you have it and I don't want your things. That's what love says. So love is true. Love is faithful. It's loyal. It's protective. It's pure. It's unselfish. Love is absolutely content. Love isn't going to be unkind to anyone, especially to parents. Love is not going to kill somebody. Love's not going to steal from someone. Love's not going to do anyone harm in any fashion. Now back to the text here in Romans. So Paul says in our text, Romans 13, 8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Verse 9, for this you shall not commit adultery, that you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's a direct quote out of Leviticus uh, 19.18. That's exactly what it says there. So again, if you love God, you're going to fulfill the first four commandments. And if you love your neighbor as yourself, then you're going to fulfill the last six. And that's love fulfilling the law. That's what he means. Love fulfills the law. And again, that's why Jesus goes on in that Matthew 22 passage, verse 39, answering the question, what is the greatest commandment? He says, the second is like it. Matthew 22, verse 39, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Love fulfills the law. Love fulfills the law. Godly love doesn't commit adultery. Because sinful, uh, it's a sinful defilement against another person. And, and sexual immorality comes from sexual lust, never from real love. Godly love doesn't murder, right? Godly love wouldn't steal. Godly love would never rob another person of their life or their possession or their property. Godly love doesn't covet, uh, covet at all. It doesn't desire a long after or lust after those things that belong to somebody else. Godly love doesn't do that. Those kind of transactions all come from a sinful heart. Again, remember the Lord Jesus Christ himself said in Matthew 15, verse 19, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. From a bad heart become, comes bad actions. Now Jesus, he, he raised the standard. Again, the, the Pharisees of the day, they're just on the letter of the law. But uh, Jesus said, no, 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 we've got to deal with the spirit of the law. It's not just the letter, it's the spirit. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 21. Christ says, You heard the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Verse 27, You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for has committed adultery already in his heart. He's saying, look, the heart's the issue. It's always the, the issue. The heart is always the issue. All sin begins in the heart. And again, the law of love is not just concerned with externals. The law of love is concerned with the internal, the internal workings of a man's heart. 
And again, a person who is consumed by the, the mercy of God in Christ, the, the person of Christ in his, over, in his own life, the, the person who is overwhelmed by God's mercy in his life, that person is going to live his life with a godly kind of love. A love that has a clean heart, a regenerated heart, a renewed heart. All, all, all of its affections are not set on things below, but set on where? Things that are above. That's the godly regenerated heart. The godly love that comes from a godly heart, from the mercies of God, desires always to please God. And then to love his fellow man. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, summed up in saying you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's godly love. Again, godly love loves your neighbor as yourself. Godly love is the true love for your fellow man, for your neighbor. And it only comes uh, from one or in one who truly knows God in Christ. Fallen man's incapable of this kind of love. Fallen love can't, fallen man can't do anything except serve himself and love himself. Fallen man can't do anything other than uh, be self-centered and selfish. When the world talks about love, it's really talking about lust, right? There's a song used to be a number of years ago, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. And you tell the world of the greatest demonstration of the love of God and they say, I hate you. I don't want to listen to that nonsense. Right? So, so again, we, I talked about this morning, we can't make up definitions of words. This is the standard. This is the definition of what love is. That the greatest form of love is the demonstration of love towards sinful mankind by, by the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, all selfish people do is selfish things. All unregenerate people do is unregenerate things. They can't do anything else except be sinful and self-centered and selfish. James says in this, James 4.1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts or wars and fights among you? Is it not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have. You commit murder and you are envious. You cannot obtain. You fight and quarrel. So the world fights, wars, lusts, uh, immoralities, thefts, murders, robberies, all the problems in our world come from a fallen heart, a fallen human heart, because of self-centeredness, because of of sinfulness. Uh, Therefore, again, on his own, fallen man, unregenerate man, can't possibly fulfill God's command to love your neighbor as yourself. All fallen man can do is love himself. So again, Paul says, if there's any other commandment, it's summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, again, that word love, you're familiar with it. It's the, it's the, the, the Greek word agape. It's an interesting word. And I think it's interesting in the sense, in the context, it wasn't used in classical Greek language. And I think we need to read it from that understanding. It wasn't used in the classical Greek language. This godly love, agape love, uh, uh, th- this kind of love became something that was synonymous with Christianity. The world, again, doesn't know this kind of love. Love, sweet love, no, not uh, as the song goes. That, that's ridiculous. The, the culture at the, at the time here, when this word was introduced by Paul, they had no concept of this love. Because fallen men can't rise to this level of love. So again, the love by the world is just nothing more than lust. And this kind of new idea of this agape love is made possible only by God's entrance into the world through the person of Jesus Christ. The kind of love that God has shown us through Christ. So I think we can't overlook the fact that this is a shocking word, uh, this kind of example of love in the culture. Now, <clears throat> one commentator has said this about agape. He says agape is one of the rarest uh, uh, words in the ancient Greek literature, but one of the most common words in the New Testament. And we need to read it from that perspective. Agape love, he says, is God's love. John three sixteen. for God so 
loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Agape love then is love that is above all sacrificial. It's a sacrifice of self for the sake of others, even for others who may care nothing about us and who may even hate us. Agape love is not a feeling, but it's a determined act of the will, which always results in determined acts of self-giving. Agape love is willfully, joyfully desiring to put the welfare of others above your own. Agape love leads, uh, leaves no room for pride, for vanity, for arrogance, self-seeking, or self-glory. Agape love is the act of choice, and we're commanded, it to, the writer says, to exercise it even on behalf of our enemies. That's agape love. I think it's a great definition, a great description of, of, uh, of love, biblical love. Self-sacrifice, self-sacrificing, a determined act of the will to put the welfare and the joy of others above oneself. That's godlike love. That's agape love. And again, that's the kind of love that Paul is calling us to here in Romans 13. And this kind of love, again, this true love for a neighbor that fulfills the law of God, again, a natural man can't do that. A natural man can't love like that. The only way for a man to love like this, the way God commands, is that a man must first come and see himself rightly before a holy God. That he must come and see himself as a sinner uh, under God's wrath because of his sin. He has to see, again, the light of the reality of who he is, in light of the reality of the truth of God. Again, as a natural man, an unregenerate man, fallen, rebellious, separated, uh, condemned. Desperately in need of what? Mercy. Desperately in need of God's grace. Desperately in need of the Savior that will provide that mercy and grace into his life. So again, to love the way God commands us to love, we have to be regenerated. Our hearts have to be turned away from ourselves and turned towards the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And once a man is regenerate, once a man comes to faith in Christ, once he's born again, once he enters into a reconciled relationship, a new relationship with God, he has a new heart and a new mind. With a new heart and a new mind, he has new affections. Again, a heart renewed by God's mercy is beginning to begin to look around him and see all men around them as souls in the sight of God. <clears throat> souls in the sight of God and apart from Christ, like we once were, are lost, separated, hellbound, hopeless in the presence of a holy God. But when a man again is saved by grace, when he sees all of life through the mercies of God in his own life, he's going to remember who he was apart from Christ, apart from when God poured out his love in his own heart. And then he's going to look at all those around him, and he's going to have pity for them. Not contempt, but pity. He's going to have pity, and he's going to have a great heart of compassion and sympathy for them, and desire for them to receive the same kind of help and love that he has received, again, through the person of Jesus Christ. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now who are our neighbors? Everyone. Everyone? Yeah. Everyone around us. Are we not ambassadors from a different kingdom and a different realm? <clears throat> the, the world of the rebellious and our neighbors are all those around us. We represent Christ everywhere we go. You mean that knuckle-headed guy who lives next door to me? Yeah. What about that foul-mouthed foul mouth guy that always works on your car? Yeah. That's why I used to always go back to him before he passed away because I wanted to have a chance to talk to him. 
really gruff guy. Had good opportunity to share the truth with him. Your brother-in-law? Well, I don't know about that, you know. <laughs> right? Or how about the guy that you work with that bothers you? Whatever that means. All those people in your life you come in contact with that don't know Christ. I was telling my wife, I don't even know if she knows I was telling her this, but <laughs> there was a guy I was dealing with last week. I think this guy drives me insane. I mean, I love him. <laughs> but <laughs> I just all of a sudden thought, you know what? By God's providence, he keeps bringing him back into my life. Maybe, maybe there's a providential appointment that I have with him that I need to overlook all the things that drive me crazy about him and just try to take a little bit of time with him because I don't think he knows the Lord. Who's our neighbor? Everybody. And again, when we start seeing the mercy of God and Christ in our own life, we start loving the way that God commands us to love, we're going to start to be moved with compassion towards those we come in contact with all around us. Again, those who don't know the Savior. And then we'll want to do them good, spiritually. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10 says this, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. So again, to love as Paul is commanding us requires continual self-denial in order to meet the needs of others. And since self-denial runs countercultural to our flesh, even as a believer... It's going to require constant effort. It's going to require constant effort and constant thought on our part to love the way we've been commanded to love, to pay that debt that we owe that is never in the final end paid because we just, as long as we take breath, we're representatives of Christ. We pay that debt. And if we're going to love the way God commands us through Christ, and again, Christ interacting in our life the way Paul is commanding us here, that we're going to have to take the focus off of ourselves in order to start thinking of others. And when we fall short, as we do in our flesh, perfectly loving others, then we can praise our God that Jesus Christ, our Savior, who is our righteousness, He's the one who perfectly fulfilled the law on our behalf. And as we attempt to practice true biblical love, seeking the highest good of others around us, when we fail... We continue to point ourselves back to the person of Jesus Christ. And as we continue to represent God in Christ, we continue to point all men to the person of Jesus Christ. Again, who perfectly fulfills the law, who perfectly loves men, who loves us and gave himself for us. And we point men back to this one who loved us and this one who loves the world. This one who said, greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. So again, Jesus Christ himself is the ultimate fulfillment of the law of love. That same law that brings us to a point of condemnation because we realize we're not perfect and we can't fulfill it. It brings conviction of sin. It's supposed to be the tutor that leads us to the person of Christ. And we're the ambassadors of God's grace with a debt of mercy because of God's mercy in our life that we're responsible to share with others around us. All right? All right. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for... your goodness to us. I'm thankful for this uh, quick study here in this uh, part of Romans 13. We acknowledge the fact that we are debtors to your love, debtors to grace, and we're so thankful for your kindness in our life. We pray, Lord, that we'd be faithful to the task and that we would be obedient to your 
truth, that we would continue to look at others around us with transformed hearts as you've transformed and changed us with an eye of pity uh, to share with them the hope of the gospel uh, that is the, the only hope of the nations. We thank you, Lord, for your love for us. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for these young folks and all the work with them and the Kids for Truth program and all the other kids programs in our fellowship. Just thank you for the great privilege and the blessing of having another generation of young people coming up who are being taught the truth. And may we, as an entire body, realize the great responsibility we have to pour into the lives of all of them. Help us to be thankful and express that thanks to the leaders and then help us to be faithful to those young people and keep encouraging them in their walk towards the Savior. Thank you for our day of fellowship and for your word. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.